Welcome to coffeeis.me podcast, where me means you, or more precisely, us. This is the show where your host, Valerian and Marcus, without using any interrogation techniques, convinces coffee professionals to reveal their secrets to teach and inspire you to make better coffee and earn a few bucks on the side, if that's what you fancy. Let the show begin. Hello coffee lovers, welcome to another episode of Coffee Is Me podcast. I'm your host Valerian Hrala. If you wonder where Marcus is, then you have to know that Marcus will be not with me for the next few episodes uh, for two reasons. One, it's pretty obvious we are living in a pandemic world and we should be separated. And the other reason is that in the next few episodes I want to cozy up with our Coffee Pro members. But I do not blame you if you want to listen to more of Marcus's wisdom and you can do so at coffeecampus.com. At coffeecampus.com every week Marcus interviews uh, people through Zoom. So if you're into that kind of thing, go ahead and listen to that. If you want to listen to the previous episodes, just visit coffeecampus.com blog and you can check them out. In the next few episodes, I'm going to interview some of our Coffee Pro members. Coffee Pro is our flagship online education platform where you can sign up and get over 26 hours of content. There are over 300 videos and over 12 courses which can guide you all the way from seed to the cup, you know, and you learn about roasting, about farming, you will learn everything about blending, espresso, and so so much more. One day I was really curious who are our members and I checked out their domains. I was super surprised that we have very interesting very interesting uh, brands there and some of them I contacted and asked them if they are willing to share their wisdom. As the first volunteer was Nick Walton from Flag and Wire. Nick's story is amazing. He's a kind of a rebel who was tossed out of his home and he had to sleep in his car. Later, he worked in a coffee industry carrying heavy, heavy coffee bags. But today, together with his wife, uh, they run the brand called Flag and Wire. We're going to unpack a lot in this episode, but kind of highlights, except, you know, the Nick's fascinating story would be that the passion, like, do you really need passion for coffee when you start your brand? Or what kind of passion do you need? And one of the highlights would be talking about sales channels. I know you guys love this one. Everybody wants to know what are the working and non-working sales channels. And as you will learn from this episode, it's for everybody it's something else. But you know, me and Nick will going to discuss our best sales channels. And if you have other opinion, just let us know because you know we are learning too. I mean, we hope that you guys get a little bit interactive with us and let us know what works for you and maybe even share your tricks. Well, come on, we are sharing our tricks, so you should share your tricks, right? <laughs> All right, I hope you will have as much fun with this as I did. So let's listen to the podcast with Nick Walton from Flag and Wire. Hey, Nick, welcome to the podcast. Uh, I'm so glad that you uh, take the opportunity and uh, have time for us to share your wisdom or your experience in the coffee industry. Welcome. Well, thank you very much for having me. I really appreciate it and, and uh, think, think it's going to be fun. Yeah, it is going to be fun. But before we start, you know, uh, I want to know what's hidden behind the name. My wife and I are first generation entrepreneurs. Both of us have, we have awesome parents, but 
not a one of them is a business person. And so, um, uh, and so for us, you know, we started, we bought the roasting company back in 2009 and we didn't know what we were doing at all. And so for us, for a lot of, for a long time, it was, you know, kind of two steps forward and one and three quarters back. And, uh, we, we went through a rebranding process in 2015 and we worked with a naming consultant. Uh, she was out of Sacramento. It was a really good experience. And she taught us, uh, some, just some metrics and some kind of some lenses to look through when you're looking at naming something, whether it's naming a human child or naming a business or naming a new product launch or whatever. And so the name itself needed to be when we were rebranding, it needed to be evocative, it needed to be spellable and pronounceable, and it needed to be procurable, meaning not just, you know, kind of dot-com stuff, but also patent and trade office. You know, we needed to be able to protect that name. And the name came from a poem that I had memorized when I was a, a little boy. And uh, anyway, I, I'll spare you the entire poem, but uh, the poem is about, you know, kind of perseverance and success. And so the the last the last line it's kind of a horse racing reference, an old horse racing reference. And the, and the last line is uh, that uh, uh, the battle is fought in the home stretch and won twixt the flag and the wire. And so it's just sort of the flag was the beginning of the race and the wire was the end of the race. It's where we get, it's where we get, you know, vernacular, like, um, you know, we're down to the wire on this project or, or uh, you know, it's from that old horse racing. There was a, the finish line was down on the ground and then up high up above the stands up above the spectators there was a wire that the judges were actually looking through little scopes and so that's you know old gray mare by a nose it's anyway whatever too much talking about that but that's where the name comes from it comes from a poem and um about perseverance and sort of staying the course you you touched a few things i want to ask about it's uh first uh i want to know what was the name before the name when we bought the company the name was Mud River Coffee Roasting. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, and we bought that company back in 2000 and, um, 2009. At the time, we were running a coffee shop. We were part owners in a coffee shop called Slow Train. And uh, <clears throat> we didn't choose either of those names. And so when we had an opportunity to open our own shop years later, we chose the name Chrysalis. Which is the mm. sort of uh, this is which is the pupa state of a butterfly, you know, or a moth, and we really liked the imagery of that chrysalis. That that was my question about like <laughs> how how does a name of a company how is it born? I mean that's super important. Yeah. Like you also mentioned that you hired a person who helped you uh, to name it. Yeah. Uh, I always found them kind of like oh what a stupid professional. Somebody else told me that they did that same, and I was like maybe it's not. Maybe it's you know yeah. you need help with that because I tell you an example like. Uh, you know, I have the company called Anish Coffee here in the United States. And when we named it, uh, we did, I mean, first of all, you know, for us, it was important that there is a .com domain we can register. Uh, huh. And also for us, it was important so people can uh, understand it. Like <clears throat> I am, a, my, for me, English is my third language. So it was important, super important that person like me understands what Anish means. So, you know, we went through also through some testing to people, but one thing we never did, uh, we never patented the name. And you mentioned huh. that, that it should be patentable. And just recently I was uploading some video to YouTube and I seen there's other unleashed coffee. 
So we went right away yeah. to trade market and we did trade market because <laughs> we were the first, which is, you know, uh, so it is, I think this profession is uh, important if you can afford it, uh, maybe it's uh, something to consider. Yeah, you know, I think so the, the you mentioned the, the naming consultant, she was, she was, um, she, we actually learned about her from a customer here in town where we have a customer um, at our cafe who's a magazine editor. And, and I was just talking with Emily one day, this friend of ours from, from town and saying, yeah, we're trying to rebrand, we're, you know, whatever, for these reasons, but, you know, we don't know. And so she put me actually in touch with this, with this consultant out of California there. And that, you know, I understand where you're coming from. It, it may not be the most important money that anybody could spend, especially if, if uh, and I know a lot of your questions here are, are about, you know, kind of startups. It may not be wise money to spend at the beginning, but for us, it was easy I look back on the money we spent on on that project and it was well worth it because, you know, like I said, she taught us a little bit of the psychology. She helped mm -hmm. us or she helped us see some of the psychology like you're talking about of, you know, what's what is in a name. And, and like I said, it really needs to be three things. It needs to be evocative, sort of saying something to your guts before you start, uh, before you know what it even is. It should be spellable and pronounceable which seems obvious when I say that out loud, that seems like, well, duh, you know, that's, of course it should, but you look around, look around at the world and there's a lot of names that are not spellable and not pronounceable. Totally and, right. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And, and then it should be procurable. So, so for instance, um, on the procurable side, that's what you're talking about, you know, getting the name, getting the name trademarked and <clears throat> working with the U S patent and trade office. There was at least one other mud river coffee roast roasters, and there was Mud River Dog Products. And then there was lots of names that were probably too similar out there. As we did a patent or, or a, a, a trademark search uh, with the old name, there was lots of names out there that were like Muddy River, Muddy Waters, Mud, you know what I'm saying. Lots of different yeah. names, lots of different companies that had similar enough names that it was like, if we did get into a, a trademark battle later, later on, let's say our companies both grew, it's all sort of fine and good when you're in when you're in, you know, <clears throat> London, England, and I'm in McMinnville, Oregon, nobody cares. But it, it starts making a difference as those companies grow and, and might bump up against each other. So that was really important to us. And then another one of those sort of lens points was um, was spellable and pronounceable. And like I said, my, my coffee shop, the first coffee company, the first coffee entity that, that I actually got to have a hand in naming, you know, that I was involved in naming, was the coffee shop my wife and I built, and that was called, and we and we called it Chrysalis, and that's a classic example of something that is not spellable and pronounceable. I was just going to tell you so, that I'm not going to yeah. even try to say that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and so we had it was Chrysalis. It was called Chrysalis from the time we opened it. We opened it in August of 13, and then we rebranded the entire. So then we were running Mud River Coffee Roasting and Chrysalis Coffee, and then uh, and then. Uh, we actually had a third name we were working with too. I'll spare you the details, but but essentially we were working with three names. We're doing three Facebook accounts. We're, you know, marketing mm -hmm. in triplicate. It was just getting ridiculous, and so we we um, we thought about Chrysalis. But yeah, we for those two years that the coffee shop was called Chrysalis Cafe or Chrysalis Coffee House, we had people come in all the time, and you know just reading not you know re misreading the name, and it was Crystal's Cafe or it was Chrysalis or 
you know, whatever it was. And that's fine. And you kind of want to, I don't know if this is rude or not. You kind of want to roll your eyes and go like, come on, read the name. This is my business here. But in reality, we're here to serve people. And, uh, you know, people don't feel this is this is kind of a big thing for me anyway. People don't feel loved and cared for when they are not sure exactly how to spell the name. Or you know, say the name. So yeah, you you are right. I mean, lesson. I do a lot of uh, like web work and psychology. When you design a website, I I don't even like to say that design websites because I design businesses. Uh, designing website, everybody can do that nowadays. It, there are a lot of tools, but designing a, a a a business online requires a lot of psychology and thinking how people react. You know, the right yeah. wording and many many other things. And one thing which you mentioned uh, is. You're right. It's not about you. It's about them. If you start to uh, do any business, it's about your customers. It's not about you. Yeah. If you have a lot of ego, do something else. You know, be a CEO or I don't know, be a politician. Yeah. But if you want to be an entrepreneur, it's super important that it's about them. You always have to talk about them. You always have to think like them. By them, I mean yeah. your customers or potential customers. I think I I think so. Yeah. And that's a, and that's a hard lesson to learn. And, you know, a, a lot of us, I, I, my wife and I bought the company in 2009, but I've been working, you know, in coffee since my first job. My first job was, you know, I'm a, I'm kind of a big dude. I'm, 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 I'm strong and, and I can lift a coffee bag. So my first job was schlepping coffee bags at a roasting company up in Portland. And, and that was in 2000, or I mean, uh, in uh, 1998 or so. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and and so I'm definitely in the industry long enough to remember the sort of rude barista, you know, trope. And uh, and and so for those of us who, especially I think for those of us who have been in the industry for a long time, this sounds crazy, but I I know that as a young person, you know, I was 17, I guess, when I started. In, in and uh, and I know for me, I was looking for an identity, not only as a coffee professional that early, but also as a, as a person, uh, you know, you're still, you're still looking for your identify identity, your place in the community. And so that this sounds crazy, but I've, I've talked with people before that rude barista trope, that, that kind of thing is so deeply embedded in me that it, uh, it's something I have to watch out for all the time. Not that I'm rude to people or that I want to be rude to people or that my first instinct is to be rude to people, but my first instinct sometimes is to just sort of um, not put people first, mm -hmm. uh, to not always put people first. And, and that's, well, it's bad business and it's also, you know, not the, not the, not the way to, not the way to live. So Dude, something, the, we, something we battle with. The fact that you are aware of that, that's super important. I mean, I'm the same, obviously, like, you know, we like our products, you know, we have yeah. a personal investment in them. So we do feel that, you know, a kind of personal attachment to them. But the yeah. fact that you're aware of the fact that, you know, let me uh, try to make it about them, that, that's super important. That's, that's cool, you know, so we are not perfect in any way. <laughs> All right. Do you remember your first coffee, by the way, because... I like yes. to ask this question because that gives kind of a personality to, to the people behind the mic. Yeah, well, <laughs> I, I hope, I would assume that most people's first cup of coffee is not what they would order today. But my, um, I, my first cup of coffee was a, I, I, a big, I don't know what size it was, but I know it was the biggest size they sold, a big raspberry mocha. 
Mm. Uh, from a from a from a from an old school roasting company here in t- in my town here McMinnville called Cornerstone Coffee and they are they are sadly no longer in business but they were um, they started they opened their doors back in the late 80s I think and uh, and and uh, yeah so that would have been my first certainly that would have been my first espresso beverage my first cup of coffee I grew up on a dairy farm so there was always bad coffee around and I definitely had a few cups of that growing up but um I was never a coffee drinker until I discovered espresso was it some was that uh raspberry drink something which kind of motivated you to go into the coffee industry or it just was something you remember no it was just something I remember and and uh I remember because I was with some friends who went to coffee shops who went to this coffee shop very you know pretty often and I was um trying to be cool <laughs> I was trying to I was trying to convince my friends that uh, I was trying to convince my friends that uh, that this was my you know daily regular occurrence and uh, so anyway so why did you start to work with coffee okay so um, when I was when I was like I said when I was 17 this is a little bit of a weird story I don't know if this is weird for a podcast or not but I was a mouthy kid and I was rude to my parents and uh, and things built up And uh, it was pretty bad, actually. And my dad gave me the boot. Like I said, I grew up on a dairy farm. And my dad finally, at some point, you know, uh, ran me off the farm. And <clears throat> without going through my entire life story, I will I will jump ahead and say that I have an excellent relationship with my parents today. We have a we, we, we reconciled well. But at any rate, uh, he kicked me off the farm and I lived in my car for about a uh, for about a month or so. Wow. And then a fa- and then a family took me in. And uh, and and uh, you wouldn't believe it, but their name is Love. Their name is Love. Corey and Jen Love took me in, and uh, at that and 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 when I moved in with them, and their family, um, they kind of were. They're kind of those people. They still do it today. We're still good friends today. They they. Uh, this is going to sound really terrible. Maybe this will sound awful, but they just sort of they take in strays. They care for people. I'm counting myself among the strays. They take people in and they care for people, and I really appreciate that. So I moved in with them, and Corey at that time was a hobby roaster. He would roast coffee in a um, in an air popcorn popper uh-huh. down on the street, and then rush upstairs to our apartment and throw it on a cookie sheet and throw it into the freezer, and that was our coffee for the for the house. And so, uh, yeah, and so so then while I was living with them, he started he and his wife started a small coffee roasting company, and uh, and that's how I got my start. And, and that's, that's the job I was alluding to, you know, I could schlep bags and lift stuff and move stuff and shove stuff. So, so they kept me around and I worked for them, uh, for their, for their operation on and off from about 90, like I said, 98 to about 2004. And, uh, then in 2004, I was a building contractor from 04 to 08. I was a building contractor. I, I laid floors. And then after at uh, 2008, you know, the last time we had a gnarly recession, I, my my uh, flooring business kind of fell out from under me, no pun intended, and and that's how I and then I ended up in coffee again. Yeah, it's it's a good pun though. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I'm sorry about the you know what happened, but you know no, no. I, I always I always say that like I failed many times or things happened in my life, but if if you get a big slap and you just stand up, look around, and look for the next opportunity you might end up in your dream job. I, that's my theory always, you know. Yeah, I think that's that certainly has been the case for us. It's a long-term dream, but um, 
but it and it was a it was a shock because like I said I was I was in the coffee industry you know 98 to 04 but I didn't consider myself you know quote a coffee professional I was working in a roastery and I learned to do espresso and I you know worked around but it was not something that I saw myself doing long term and then um into that like I said 2008 just work dried up completely and what happened was uh, it my wife is Canadian. She was born in Winnipeg and then anyway, moved to BC when she was a kid. So I got married in 2006. And for those first years before we had kids and whatever else, we would drive up there like, like monthly, we would drive up to see her folks and her brothers. And so mother's day, actually, Hey, this is, this is a, this is an auspicious, uh, this is an auspicious time of year because it was mother's day of, and we're recording this the day after mother's day. It was mother's day of 2008 when uh, we went across the border and back then you couldn't afford the phone charges if you crossed the border so we would cross the border and I threw my phone turned my phone off and threw it in the in the uh, threw it in the glove box and we were there all weekend and when we crossed the border again coming back into the United States um, uh, I turned my phone on and Corey Love this old friend of mine had sort of hatched a plan for us to buy the company, to buy the the roasting company, Mud River Coffee Roasting. And, uh, and, and so it all happened really fast. It was just up to me to sort of find a little bit of money, not really very much money. But anyway, I guess what I'm long-windedly trying to say is you're absolutely right. I'm identifying what, with what you're saying. Sometimes stuff just happens on accident. I definitely feel like, you know, I, you know, from... On, on both ends, originally when I was, you know, a mouthy teen, I found my way into the coffee industry initially because my dad kicked me off the place. I probably would have been a farmer otherwise, or I don't know what I would have done. And, you know, I just ended up here. And then it was kind of the same thing. My business failed. My flooring, con- you know, my flooring business just dried up and I didn't know what to do. And then something accidentally happened. I ended up backing backing into this industry for a second time and uh, and i'm glad i did awesome uh i have a similar story but i will not bore people with that right now i was more i'm more curious it's 2009 uh, i guess you knew how to roast coffee on a popcorn popper but how did you learn how to roast coffee on a coffee roaster okay till very recently i roasted on the roaster that i bought with the company back in 2009 which was the same roaster that I was working with and starting to learn to roast with back in, you know, the late nineties and early two thousands, which was, which was a weird cobbled together. I call it the Franken roaster. It's, it's, it's a, it's a crazy modified air roaster. So it's, um, somewhat similar to a civets roaster, Mm -hmm. but, uh, but it's, it's not quite exactly the same. And there was a lot of, there's a lot of adjustments that both Corey and I made over the years. Um, so that's what I learned to roast on. And that's what I was roasting on in 2000, what I started roasting on in 2009 for myself. What's the capacity just out of curiosity? The capacity was about seven and a half kilos. I roasted 16 pound batches. I could roast up to eight. I could roast 18. I could get 18 to, I could get 18 pounds to turn brown in there, but I couldn't, I couldn't roast it quite the way I wanted to. So gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. I did 16 pound batches and, and I did that for, we built our business. It's the hand that has fed us. I did that um, for uh, 10 years, more than 10 years. We finally fired up. We now roast on an SF-25 on a San Franciscan roaster. And we finally fired it up for the first time in January of 2020. 
Mm. So we're really we're really pretty new to to drum roasting. Congrats. So so very so uh, basically, if you moved from a popcorn popper to a kind of like a your own civets or son of fresco, whatever I would call that. What did you call it, Frankenstein or what? Yeah, just yeah, like a like a Franken roaster. Franken roaster, that's right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I like that. Yeah, it's a you you should patent that brand, Frank Franken roaster. <laughs> the Franken. So, did you did you learn like did you use any resources for learning to roast, or you just went what uh, you learned from your uh, step parents? Question mark. Um, well, no, I, I, I'm pretty self-taught and actually the way I roast is different. Even there's some significant differences between the way I roast and certainly my approach to roasting than, than even Corey who, who taught me to roast on that machine. And in terms of resources, um, you know, we're living in a golden age. I don't have to tell you this. I mean, frankly, coffee pro is a good example, but you know, we're living in a golden age of resourcing because in 2000 and you know, nine even, but certainly earlier than that, we didn't have the kind, I can remember scouring uh, Coffee Geek for information, and there used to be a little, um, there used to be a uh, kind of a message board called Coffeed, uh, that... I remember uh, that, yeah. Yeah, you remember Coffeed? I, I remember scouring the resources that did exist, and nobody had heard of, nobody had even heard of what I was roasting on, and so I'll tell you what, th- I can't count the number of times that I had some sort of interaction with someone and the way it would go is we would start, whether it was at, you know, whatever, an event or whatever, we would start talking about roasting. We'd kind of, we'd kind of, you know, get striking up a conversation and it was going well. And then they'd say, okay, so what do you roast on? And I would start describing what I'm roasting, roasting on. And they would either, one of two things would happen. They would either glaze over, you know, their eyes would glaze over because it was just getting too, it was getting too deep and too weird, you know, uh, uh, roasting stuff that nobody's ever heard of or the other option and the other option and this was actually more common people would hear the word air roaster and immediately just sort of like make a make a judgment for uh, mm-hmm. in terms of what I was able to produce with that air roaster and oh you know they had they had me typecast at that point because I was uh, roasting with an air roaster so so to be honest with you like not only did I not have too much in the way of um, resources or, or, or education for how to produce good coffee on that machine. Uh, I, uh, I, uh, I didn't even have any like buds. I didn't even have any friends, you know, people who were, you know, kind of in it with me. So I'm sorry to hear that. You know, (laughs) I, 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 you know, I have to say, I don't like judgy people. I mean, there is a, um, I'm a little bit go a little bit different industry, so I don't offer any don't, don't offend anyone in the coffee industry. There's there's a um, book called Postmodern uh, Postmodernist Winemaking. It's for winemakers, and you know I love different approaches. I love when people think differently. You know I don't like the same and same. I don't like to line up and it's like oh this is the way how we do it. But the guy is so judging his book for, towards anybody else. And I was like I cannot read this. You know I cannot read. It's like he has to feed uh, or protect his theory by dissing others. That doesn't work with me. So I'm sorry that you had that experience. I think that, you know, if you do something different than anyone else, that's the most important thing because there is so many third wave roasters which are the same, although same, the same, the same. There must be somebody who does something different. So, you know, uh, I think the air roaster is a good example of that. Yeah, you know, for a long time I had roaster shame. I talk about roaster shame because, you know, it doesn't take too many 
there were there were a few times where I would be in a conversation with somebody who I really admired mm-hmm. in the industry, at maybe at SCA or something like that. I'd find myself in a conversation with somebody I admired. And and to be sort of, you know, kind of summarily dismissed out of hand, that only happens to you a few times before you stop talking about it. <laughs> and you just stop you just stop telling people you, you when people ask what you're roasting on, you find a way to change the subject and not talk about it. And so I, I definitely have experienced that roaster shame, which feels weird to say now. <clears throat> but there was a point, and it was somewhere around our rebranding, somewhere around 15, 2015, 2016, somewhere, where I kind of blinked and realized, wait a minute, I have a business here. It was probably when I started, when we started getting profitable. I have a business. People love my cafe. Wholesale customers love the product that I'm making. Um, why am I ashamed? Why would I be ashamed? People are, I'm making people happy. I'm adding value to people's lives. And I had this, I had this magical epiphany at some point in my business. And it was around then, like I said, 2015, 16, right around then I had this epiphany where, and this is going to sound obvious to some people. It's going to sound like, you know, whatever they, some people will have started out with this, but it was an epiphany. It was, it was a new thing to me. And it was the idea that, you know, we have the power as entrepreneurs we have the power through um, brain waves, you know, through 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 the use of our brains and the use of our muscles. We have the power to generate value where there wasn't any value before. We have the power to to generate happiness where there wasn't happiness before. Add value, add add value to people's lives, add value to people's days. And yes, it's not the same, you know. Uh, you know, a, a, a really amazing americano is not the same. A, is not the same kind of value as uh, a fully funded Roth IRA. <laughs> so we, we got to be realistic about the kind of value we're generating, but it's still a magical thing when I think about it, you know, Hey, we can, we can take nothing and build something. We can take a, you know, a small amount of money and energy and build a company. And that's what we had done. And, and we're still not, you know, what we want to be, we're developing and changing all the time. But I think I, 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 I let go of my roaster shame at some point in there because it just is like, you know, look at what we've built. Yeah. We don't have the greatest equipment on planet earth maybe, but, but we've really, I'm really proud of what we were able to build from 2009 to 2019. Uh, Nick. Very well put. I think you should own it. I think everybody should own it. It's your business. It's your style and you have to own it. Like I, ex- I remember when uh, I had my Slovak company called Green Plantation and uh, we were very famous that we brought in the light roast into Slovakia, into Central Europe. So we were the black sheep of the coffee industry because everybody is doing espresso in, in Central Europe. But after a while, you know, we kind of like realize that we, we basically hit the market. There's no more people or like there's more, but it's kind of hard to convince them to come to us. So we started to roast dark. Of course, by then the third wave coffee became super, super popular in Slovakia. So we got like another 20, 30 roasters doing the same, what we are doing. All of them went against us so hard that look, they are betraying us. They're doing darker roast. And I'm not talking about Starbucks. We just went a little bit darker with the profile, you know? And yeah. I was like, I don't care. I see how yeah. our customers react to that. They are grateful. Yeah. We're getting great feedback, great reviews. Some people said, look, guys, we, 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 we want to drink specialty coffee, but we don't have 
the fancy gear. We have this super automatic little machine at home and I don't even have time to, you know, play around with it. So we want just a solid, amazing coffee and we delivered. So we are super happy. And I said to uh, Peter is the uh, CEO and, uh, and roaster in, in Green Plantation. And he was always like, oh, look, they hate us. Like, own it, dude, own it. We are making people happy. That's the most important. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that's so. Yeah. Can I, can I cut in with a short story here? Yeah, go for it. Yeah, yeah. On? No, well, no, go for well, it. Well, so I, I, one, one, one story that I kind of tell and I actually tell it a lot because it's meaningful to me is uh, it was in 2014. So it was a year and change after we opened Chrysalis Coffee House, after we opened our cafe. And we'd been doing business for, you know, four or five years and struggling. And, and like I said, first generation entrepreneurs where we're, we, we took a lot of backward steps. So it was 2014. We were living a, an hour away. We were living an hour away in another town from our, from our coffee shop. So every morning, shop wasn't making very much money. I only had one employee and I could only work in part time. And so every morning I would get up, you know, at the crack of dawn, before dawn, obviously, and drive an hour, get ready, drive an hour, get to our coffee shop, run the shop all day long. And I was doing this, you know, four or five, six days a week for a, a few years. For a few years I did that. And so uh, so one one day, and, and, and we, use, uh, we use Square Register. We've always used Square Register. And we had little babies at the time. That was right when we had little kids. My kids are getting older now, but at that point we had two in diapers and, you know, whatever, three little, little bitty kids. And, uh, and so my wife and business partner, she felt really stuck at that time in our lives. You know, she's an hour away from the business, an hour away from me and whatever, and we're not making any money. And she's watching the square register all day long on her phone. She's opening and refreshing and seeing how much money we're not making. And so one day it was not uncommon. Hopefully she doesn't hate me for saying this, it was not uncommon for me to get home at the end of a long day and find her, you know, kind of crying uh, for the business and for just where we were. And so one day I got home and it was a particularly bad day in 2014 from a revenue standpoint, just we hadn't made any money and we didn't, you know, whatever. And so I drove all the way home. I get home. She's crying. She's, she's, she's sitting on the kitchen floor crying. And I sat down next to her and I started crying too. And we're both just, we're both just kind of a mess. We're not sure, you know, should we quit? Should we, at what point do you throw in the towel? I know most entrepreneurs have that moment where you kind of go, is it, is now the time? Is this when you quit? Is this when you let it go or, or not or whatever? And so I'm, we're sitting there and she said to me, and this, this is where it relates back to what you're talking about. She said to me, she goes, she goes, are you even, are you even passionate about coffee anymore? And I, that thought sort of descended on me, it took a long time for me to sort of get my head around. And I thought about that for a long time. I don't remember what I said to her in the moment, but I thought about that for, you know, days and weeks afterwards, obviously for years, I'm still thinking about it. And what I came up with or where I, where I landed on it was, uh, no, from, from, from 1998, you know, Portland, Oregon, rude barista territory onward, I had been taught or or it had been communicated to me that coffee was somehow sacred or was somehow um, holy on some level. And I realized in that moment or, 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 you know, due to that moment, I realized, no, I am not passionate about coffee. Not only am I not passionate about coffee, I'm not going to live my life uh, generating or formulating or pursuing passion for coffee. So 
from the outside looking in, lots of people would look at me. I'm a licensed Q grader, and so is Kim. So is my wife. We're, we're both. And we, we do this work. We love this work. We love this industry. We love working with producers. From a lot of people's perspectives, you would see this as passionate. You, these, are, these are passionate coffee people. Th- these people are passionate about coffee. But in reality, it's the subtle difference between realizing coffee is a semi-burnt seed of a tropical plant. You know what I'm saying? Let's, not, let's be realistic about what we're really wanting to get passionate about. What we're passionate about is people right. and, 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 and generating value and, and, and adding value to people's lives. And yes, we love the opportunity to do that with coffee. And yes, we're going to get nerdy. And yes, we're going to, you know, take a look at these producer partners that we're just starting to be able to have decent relationships with or productive relationships with. And we're going to treat their produce with respect. And we're going to make it this it thing that we work on. We're going to make it the best that it can possibly be. Uh, And so, yes, we're going to kind of look passionate from the outside. But no, I am not passionate about coffee. I'm only passionate about about adding value to people's lives. And that's something that you can say, but it takes a long time for, for me anyway, took a long time to actually get that instill, getting that into my brain and into my thinking, like, wait a minute, no, I'm not, I'm not, I mean, I mean, a great example is right now we're, we're living, we're, we're doing this via Skype because, because there's a global pandemic. And, uh, so right now we, along with lots of other companies, we're far from alone in this, we're selling a product format that just six months ago would have made me throw up in my mouth a little bit, which is the half gallon size jug of latte product. And so we roll our eyes when we think of this thing. But the reality is people are at home. People are either off work or out of work. People are homeschooling their kids unexpectedly. People are some people are very fearful of the virus. Some people are very fearful of the economy. Everybody is, you know, Everybody's confused about what's happening now and what's going to happen in a month and everything's changing so fast. Think of all the adjustments and changes we've had to make as a, as a, as a, as a planet over the last six to eight weeks. And so for us right now, the comforting product format that people were looking for unthinkably is a half a gallon jug of espresso and milk. And you know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so be being able to lean into this thing, into adjustments in the market and, and, and adjustments in the in the community is really important. Yes, I, I, you know, I totally love your approach. And I think that, you know, most of the coffee professionals go through that uh, process. When first you start as a passionate person, you have a certain kind of way and this is only my way. And then as your ego kind of subsides, <laughs> you open your eyes that, wait, I'm here for the customers. And you know, I, I love the same, by the way. I, I love uh, when customers are happy. So <laughs> on, yeah. my, on my side, the story is that William, uh, my business partner in Unleash Coffee, he's a farmer from Brazil who lives actually in a Bay, San Francisco Bay Area, but his family and his parents are in Brazil. He went to visit them in end of February, I think, or maybe end of January. He got stuck there. He got stuck wow. there. He's still there and I have to fulfill the orders. And what I do, I have fun with my customers. You know, I, I, he used to do it all the time, but I'm like, always, you know, when they order the green coffee, I pack them a little like a sample. And I, or when they order roasted coffee, we have these limited editions. I just dump, put there something. And a lot of people come back to me, you know, about, oh, what is this? You know, it, it's kind of cool. So, you know, having this kind of engagement and, it's kind of fun for me. I don't know. It's much more fun than just doing coffee. You know, the the fact that the customers noticed that they got something extra, you know, and 
did not expect. So yeah, I think I think you're right. After a while, it has to be about you know the uh, customers. Moving on, you are. Yes. I mean, this one is uh, a series I plan to basically interview our Coffee Pro um, members, and you are a Coffee Pro member. And first yes. of all, I I, I want to know uh, for my egoistic personal reason, how did you choose and why did you choose Coffee Pro? And second, I want to know uh, how does it work for you and how did it change the way you think or make coffee? Well, um, this is this is. Um, let's see. You asked how I discovered or how I how I decided. You guys, I mean, you guys send send emails out, and I I try to keep my eye on. We're running a business, and I'm a dad, and I'm doing a million things, but I um I try to keep my eye on what's happening in the industry and who's who's doing something different, something new, whatever. And so I was, you know, kind of um, vaguely aware of the program that you guys had put together down there. Um, and then you, I don't know, you sent, I, I think maybe I chatted with one of you. I'm not sure how I ended up on your email list, but I was on your email list and I, you know, read about the programs and I, I remember thinking this might be something we should, you know, look into, or this might be a, a cool thing. Um, and then you, I don't know, just at one point you, I think you actually discounted it at one point and I thought, well, what the heck, let's give it a try. And so we did that. That was last year sometime back late 2019, I think. Oh yeah. Uh, the, the, black Fr the big black Friday deal. Oh, you know. Must've been, that yeah, must've been it. Yeah. Black Friday. Yeah. And then, um, and then to be honest with you, I'm going to be really honest with you. We have taken in, I've taken in the roasting classes, the first and second set of roasting classes. We, uh, we've had a pretty wild and woolly quarter. We've taken on some new employees, and we've also had a couple of uh, we've also had a couple of long-term employees move on to new things, uh, new new jobs, new opportunities, and we're excited for them. But that caused a lot of that caused a lot of uh, just upheaval around here. And then we also, like I said, we've also made some new hires of of important folks in new key positions. And then uh, my wife and I, my family and I, on March first, we left for Tanzania, and so we were actually in Tanzania for for this, for COVID-19 as we started discovering, wait a minute, this is a problem. So to be honest, and then we, when we got back from Tanzania, we, it's pretty much been, you know, kind of run in place 90 miles an hour, trying to keep things moving, trying to keep things um, afloat with drastically reduced revenue streams. So I haven't had, to be honest with you, I feel badly about this, but I haven't had an opportunity to take in all of the classes like I would have, like I, you know, probably would have liked to, but, um, but yeah, that's how we discovered it. And it just seemed like a, you had a couple of courses before I bought it. I do know that before I bought it, you have a couple of courses or a couple of um, clips that, you know, that are up there for free kind of samples. And I took in a couple of those. I watched a couple of those and I just thought this is a cool, I thought it was a cool format for a cool format for learning. It's not too, it's, it's not, um, it's not you know, kind of homespun or done in the garage or whatever, but it's, but it's also not so heavily polished. I feel like it, you feel like you're kind of in the room a little bit. You feel like you're getting it from, you know, from the people. Excellent. Thanks for the Good feedback. Teaching. That's, that's awesome. I mean, we, you know, to make a program like this is very niched. So, you know, it's, uh, you, you can't really do a, uh, super duper big production like you know you would do let's say with a cooking class or something like that sure uh, but i think that you know and of course i'm preaching to my own uh project product which is not the nicest thing but um you know we, we did a solid job with the video quality and people 
don't really comment that the videos are bad or anything, you know, so that's a, that's a good feedback. Uh, well, I hope you will have time to check it out because you guys pay for it. <laughs> so, so use it to the fullest, I think. Yeah. I, I want to give a cherry on the top for our listeners and ask yeah. you your secrets, your selling mm. channels, which work, which don't, which you, you know, recommend to focus on maybe on the beginning and kind of uh, venture out later or how does it work for you? Yeah, so selling channels are complicated and we've kind of run the gambit of those um, for a for a let's see here for us I'll just describe our business for us we are primarily wholesale although that's not true this month <laughs> yeah. we our whole our wholesale business has has uh, largely dried up although it's starting to creep back uh, and then we have a retail uh, space I think it's really important when you're choosing sale a sales channel that again and I, I I'm awful about this I harp on this I go back and back and back to this if you know who you sell to what you sell and who you sell to has a huge it, it has hugely to do with your values your vision and your mission so you know what what those values are and what you're trying to accomplish in your community will will make a difference and so there are companies that I know, for instance, I love, I am aware, every time I open my books to somebody, to, if I'm going to get advice from, a, from my bookkeeper, from my accountant, from my business mentor, whatever, the answer is always the same. Oh, wholesale, 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 wholesale. Go sell some more wholesale. Wholesale is where it's at. Because for obvious reasons, we all understand there's so much less labor involved in wholesale and you know the, the, you got you to build that wholesale side. The tricky thing is I have a great relationship with my closest neighbor. Uh, my closest competitor, um, and uh, they are, it's almost a Jack Spratt situation. They have tried some retail operations over the years, and it's never gone super, super well, but their wholesale game is so strong. Their wholesale business is so strong, and and when you get to know, as I have, when you get to know the owner and the, you know, kind of key, um, the key employees at that company, it's easy to see why. They just have a passion for wholesale for wholesale sales, you know, they have a, an interest in that customer segment, that group, and, and they are able to serve those needs really well. And we're kind of the opposite. I mean, not that we can't do wholesale or don't, we sure do. Like I said, most of our business is wholesale, but ultimately I love retail. This is personal. I love retail. I really enjoy retail. I like having a retail space and I like the kinds of interaction, the kinds of interactions I get and that my company gets in a wholesale, or I mean, I'm sorry, in a retail setting, in a cafe setting. And so it really, so for me, you know, if I was going to start over, you know, I don't get to spend as much time in the retail cafe as I used to, or as I would even like to sometimes, but if I was going to start over tomorrow, I would really focus personally because of what I know about myself, my values, my vision, I would start another retail cafe and I would be a little bit gentler, push, 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 pushing for wholesale. But I know, but I know that there are other folks I've talked to who, you know, are kind of the opposite, who who you know would and have done the opposite, and, and it's really wise to do the opposite. So, I mean, I think uh, one thing I would caution startups about is the super easy account. If you can avoid doing business with, not that you shouldn't do business with or can't, or not that it's dumb, but if you can avoid doing business with too many brand new businesses, that would be helpful because then you're you're tying yourself to someone else's insecurity or financial insecurity potentially. Um, so that's a little point of that's something we did. We, you know, early on in our company, certainly early on in the wholesale side, it was just like we were we were constantly 
we had all of our accounts or most of our accounts running up huge bills. And um, a lot of times they were not very sustainable or substantial businesses themselves. And so we were in a position where we couldn't really afford to, you know, carry tons and tons and tons of, uh, of receivables. But here we are holding thousands of dollars worth of receivables that we can't, you know what I mean? And we actually ended up at, for a couple of years there, about 2000 and, you know, like I said, 13, 14, 15 there, we spiraled into some credit card debt buying green coffee because we had to keep on buying green, but our customers who, you know, the average age of their business might be a year old or a year and a half old, they weren't able to pay us. And it's not a matter of, you know, they don't like us and they tried to screw us over. It's not that none of our customers have ever been that I don't think, but it's just a matter of, you know, they're brand new, they're financially insecure, they're doing their best, but they couldn't pay the bill. So I would avoid that. And, uh, and then other easy accounts that you got to avoid or that I, that I watched out for the secrets, the CEO or the, or the regional manager, I should say of this grocery chain had tasted our coffee at one of the wineries that we sell coffee to. And he called us up and he said, boy, it was delicious. It was amazing. We'd love to have your coffee in our grocery store on the shelves. And I thought at the time, I thought I'd died and gone and gone to heaven. I thought, oh, this is it. This is my break. This is how we, this is how we write our success story. And then we were with them. We were stocking coffee in there on the shelves for, um, for almost two years. And we finally stopped when I, I had a grocery portfolio of about 20 stores. And uh, this was just, just a few of them from this one company. But anyway, I would every week go and I had to pull my coffee off of the shelves every week or every two weeks or whatever. I'd have to pull all the coffee off the shelf, buy it back from them, and then put new coffee on the shelves. And I, I realized at one point, you know, we, there was one joggernaut coffee roasting company that had beautiful placement right at eye level, you know, and, and they had a nice wide selection. And I realized, you know, grocery chains in particular, they are incentivized to have as many coffees on the shelf as possible. You walk into that aisle and it looks like a cornucopia of coffee roasting companies. There's so many, all this cool coffee from cool, sm usually smaller indie roasters and it can be overwhelming. And I realized what was happening was we were, and this is going to sound cruel or, or rude, and I don't mean for it to, but what I realized what, what was happening was we were essentially eye candy to draw people in. And then, and then most folks ended up selecting, you know, that other, that other major competitors uh, product in the end. And so we, we pulled out a grocery. So anyway, the advice is, the advice is, uh, know your values, your vision, your mission, know your key customer, know, know what you want to sell to them and how, and then, and then, and then focus on that. Don't allow yourself to get spread too thin. We sell to bars and restaurants and cafes and grocery stores and online sales and farmers markets and, you know, whatever. If you spread yourself too thin, especially early on, every, it, it can be detrimental. Every single area of your business, this is what I've discovered. Every area of your business is almost like another little, every sales channel like that is almost like another little tiny business within a business. You've got to have a specific strategy for, you know, it's not it, great. You want to sell coffee on the internet. Do you want to sell, you want to sell two bags a month to your, your aunt and your cousin who are going to buy from you? Or do you want to actually move a lot of product on the internet to people who, you know, don't have a necessarily a personal connection with you and the strategies you set up for that, you know, don't happen overnight. Uh, okay. A lot of to unpack two things. One, I'm totally with you on the groceries personally, 
I hate groceries. We had a similar issue with the chain when, you know, we had to actually go through a distributor who takes 20% from your wholesale price. <laughs> so come on, where we are. So we hardly made any money because that's what they wanted. And also we thought, oh, they have 16 stores. This would be awesome. And we are so excited. And then our tons of coffees came back because our guarantee was three months and they just sent it back. It's like, oh, we didn't sell it. And it was like, okay, so there was no promo, nothing. No, we just didn't sell it. And also like, you know, like going to grocery stores, they always, it's, they always try to kind of do the minimum for you. And you know, it's yeah. A, example would be like, I remember we pitched to another chain because William, my business partner, he's a big in grocery stores. He loves grocery stores. I hate them. So we went to pitch them and they were, you know, they said to us that, oh, our grocery chain is all about helping the local business. You know, we want you to guys succeed. And we were like, okay, I was wrong. Maybe, I mean, they really help us. And, you know, after we showed them our pricing, they said, oh, the pricing is great. You know, your story is amazing. We want you, uh, do you do free refills? And I was like, what free refills? You know, other brands after, you know, X refills, they do give us a free refill. I was like, well, you guys told us that you want to support us. You guys told us that you want to help us, you know, giving you free refill doesn't help us, you know, in any way. So I have to say, maybe I'm doing something wrong because maybe there are some guys who do it much better than I do, but I don't like to uh, deal with grocery stores. There's maybe one grocery store, which I like, and uh -huh. I've even shop there. But anything beyond that, I'm like, it's just complicated. Your uh, coffees are on a shelf competing with other coffees. It's like a museum, you know, it's you might yeah. not sell. I don't know. So, yeah, I agree with you. But I disagree with you really on the website part. And maybe because I'm a nerd <laughs> because I'm introvert. You know, I think that through social media and through your website, you can do a connection with your customers. And a good example would be Green Plantation, my Slovak business, where the COVID uh, situation, you know, the fact that we are strong on web saved our ass. Like I'm saying it vulgarly, saved our ass because we lost yeah. all our wholesale customers. We did. It just went away. We have a mortgage we yeah. and we had to pay it. But our online sales almost tripled and, you know, selling for a, for a, uh, a bag of coffee for, you know, a retail price versus wholesale price is a big difference. So we actually, because of this, we do it better for the past two, three months than otherwise. Well, I, I should, I should clarify. I probably, I probably was babbling and, and I, and I was not being clear. I, I, I really do agree with you. I think my, when I first started our company, when I first bought our company back in 2009, it was time to, we, it didn't have a website. There was no website. And so I went to a, you know, friend, an acquaintance, and he was gonna, he, he was just starting out. This is in 2009. So that we didn't have tools like Squarespace and Shopify. They weren't quite as, um, you know, usable or cohesive or they didn't exist anyway. And he sold us a website and, and, and it was a big expense for us early on. I think we paid like $2,500 for this website and it was really sold to me or pitched to me like, this is it. This is, this is the thing that's going to, you know, we're going to build this website. We're going to set it and forget it. And you're, and, and you're, you're not going to be able to handle all the orders that come in mm. and the, and the reality. So the reality is it's not, I wasn't meaning that um, you can't have a, a meaningful customer interaction. What I was really trying to say was no matter what you pick, you know, that makes me think of grocery. When I finally, 
we were thinking about ditching grocery and getting out of it. And so I asked one of the grocery buyers, one of the one of the ladies who buys who buys coffee for that grocery chain, said, "What do I got to do here? What do I I got to move some product and and I'm not moving any. And what do I got to do?" And she said, she said to me, four hours of demo time, you know, doing the doing the demo thing on the end cap and pouring coffee for people, four hours per store per week would not be too much. That's what she told me. Oh. And, uh, and, and she referenced one of the, she, she referenced one of the companies that was on the shelf and she said, well, these guys here, you know, they're not very big. They're no bigger than we are, but they have, for whatever reason, somehow committed to that four hours per store per week and their sales had gone through the roof. And so I think of that with online too, or cafe or wholesale. I think of my, my competitor, like I was saying, who's really on it with wholesale versus us, you know, that maybe we have a little bit stronger retail game. It really comes down to, I think you're totally right. You can have meaningful, excellent uh, uh, interactions with customers. You can add value to people's lives, no matter what segment you choose. The, you've got to develop a strategy specifically for that, you know, and interacting with that customer in that way. So if it's going to be online sales, that's totally, that's totally doable. And I, I'm, we're experiencing the same thing you are right now. Like our our wholesale business is down 96%. This is this is April or May 1st numbers. Our wholesale business is down 96%. Our retail business is down uh, 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 55%. But our online business is up just shy of 400%, 377%. You know, for me, it's always like, uh, and that's why I started, by the way, building my own websites. It's not because I, you know, wanted to, but because there's a lot of web designers but there's not enough people who can actually build your business online. And there's a lot of things, and maybe I should do an episode on that, you know, what should a website contain so you can understand who comes, you know, how to kind of re-engage your yeah. customers. But for me, for me, the main benefit of a website is, or a web shop, is that when you sleep, orders are coming in, you know. And it doesn't happen, as you said, that somebody told you that, oh, you know, you just put, put it up and let it uh, work and forget it. No, <laughs> that's it's like imagine a store and you have your doors locked. I mean, your customers cannot come in. I mean, even if they want to. Right. So there's a yeah. lot of things like it's the same. It's the same world like a retail store. You have to make sure that the customers are feeling welcome. They feel safe. They feel uh, that that product, what it's displayed that they want. And they also feel after they purchase something that they want to come back. It's the same. Yeah same same those are the same rules so set it forget it that's the biggest thing you know uh which yeah, is totally. a total mistake and total and that's why you know i always say that don't hire a web designer hire somebody who knows how to sell online if that's what you want and if you want a pretty website let's say you are a non-profit yeah hire a web designer but for business for selling you need somebody who, who knows how to sell online Strategy. exactly yeah. and you have to and you have to be involved there's no freaking way that you go like, oh, I'm putting my hands away. You don't have to design it. You don't have to be kind of like doing the back end, but you have to have a strategy, you know, as you said. Absolutely. All right. Uh, my last, my, my second last question, I would say, uh, okay. is, uh, you know, I like to ask this question because, again, there's a lot of people who are thinking to start a business. And if you would have $10,000, Today and you don't have your business right now. You are just starting from scratch. You have ten thousand dollars. What kind of coffee business would you start, or what would you do? Ten thousand dollars. Ten thousand dollars is a complicated amount of money because it's that's it's why I'm asking. 
Yeah, you did it on purpose. I know. <laughs> if I had 10,000 bucks to start a business, a coffee business today, I think uh, it would be some sort of support business. It, you know, with that, with that amount of money, it, you, you cut out a lot of, you, you basically cut out a retail experience. You could do a, you know, you could do a, a I thought about this. I was thinking about this yesterday evening. You could do a farmer's market business, and I think that there's there's money there. You could do a farmer's market business that really focused on cold brew, and you could spend a little bit of that money on a really, really tidy dispensing setup. You know, really don't, rather than, rather than you know, some janky setup like we have had in the past of tanks and hoses and, you know, whatever else that you're trying to set up in garbage cans full of ice and whatever. I think, you know, you could spend some of that money on a really tidy dispensing system and you could have a good business doing farmers markets and potentially events. I know here in, I, you know, every geographic area is different and I think geography and, you know, we are in a, we're in a rural area, so we don't have the same opportunities that somebody in a larger city would have. But what we do have is, for instance, uh, all these wineries around here. So if I had ten thousand bucks, I would look at. I probably would look at setting up some kind of. Um, I probably would look up setting. Uh, look at setting up some kind of dual purpose farmers market vending, and then also cold brew and maybe slow bar uh, catering. So vending, vending meaning events where. I have my own register and I'm able to take money for individual cups or bags or whatever. And then also catering, meaning, you know, I'm set up so that when these wineries want to do, you know, a wine club pickup event in the summertime or when they want to do a employee appreciation event or something like that, we're ready to pull up with the, with the, with the setup and, and, uh, and dispense some delicious coffee for their event. I, I, That's probably you know, what I would do with ten grand. This is awesome. Uh, usually, I don't know if you listen to previous podcasts when I ask this question, people either tell me it's not possible, or uh -huh. they kind of like, oh, I don't know. So this was like a very concrete answer. Thanks, man. This was really good. <laughs> no, well, you. <laughs> I am a I am a believer in proper capitalization. Let me let me say that I am a believer in. I mean, there was there was a moment when we opened our coffee shop. We we did not borrow enough money to open our coffee shop, and so part of the reason that I had my kitchen floor moment in 2014 was because we had not started with enough money. So I am sympathetic to the idea that 10,000 bucks isn't enough to start a business. On the other hand, I th I think we underestimate human ingenuity. Mm -hmm. I think we underestimate humans' abilities to knuckle down and do unthinkably hard work unpleasant work um yeah we think I, we will break but we won't i'm asking this question because um you know if you floating in money starting business is easy and you can make mistakes you still have the funding and you know no need to, yeah. i mean that's a, such a there's so many stories in a bay san francisco bay area like that you know they just toss money at you and then you kind of like have beautiful offices whatever but Green Plantation was started with 8,000 euros, which is around 10,000 yeah. bucks. So, and we are a roasting business. We grew, you know, we have now our own house with a beautiful roastery, beautiful cafe and bakery. We have everything what we wanted, but it's not easy. That's so cool. It's not easy. And you have to think on, on in, in levels of 10,000 bucks, not in the levels of 100,000 bucks. 
If you have that, awesome. If you have millions, go for it. I mean, that's, by the way, that's my secret dream. I always tell my wife that one day I win the lottery and I just, you know, can spend money without even thinking, you know, whether that makes profit <laughs> or not. I just kind of like carpet bomb, I would say, whole Slovakia with green plantation stuff and whatever happens, happens, you know. I mean, it's silly because business-wise it doesn't really make sense, but, you know, if you win 200 millions, who cares, right? <laughs> yeah, that's right. Put it out there. All right. Nick, uh, you know, I usually have wine on these uh, podcasts. Uh, it's you usually record them with Marcus in the afternoon, so it's always very nice. And I'm sure if we would be in live, we would drink some awesome wines uh, and we talk yes. about them a little bit. So I was thinking that maybe it's nine o'clock morning or now 10. It's not a good idea to start drinking. At least my wife wouldn't be happy. <laughs> <laughs> Although I can drink wine anytime. Uh, I was thinking that let's just, you know, pitch what would you drink? And I will tell you what would I drink to kind of help up, help out a little bit, uh, give a little love to some wine producers. Okay. All right. Well, I am, um, like I said, I, I grew up in rural Oregon on a dairy farm and until I was until I was well into my 20s, my favorite wine was uh, cheap beer from the gas station. So <laughs> I, am, I am very, very, very far from being an expert in this area. However, because we're doing business where we are, I have had the opportunity to connect with a lot of really amazing winemakers. And I think, uh, I, I'll, I, I don't want uh, to list everybody we do business with, but, um, or, that I, or, or every wine that I drink, but I really like, I, I'll list a couple. One, I really like uh, the wines that I get from Irie Vineyards, which is just down the street from us here. Uh, they're, uh, they're, they brought in the first, uh, let's see if I can remember this correctly. I believe they grew the first Pinot Gris grapes in the new world, which is kind of a neat little, um, kind of a neat little thing, a uh, 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 pin for their lapel. So they do really, really good work. Uh, we also really like wines from Brooks Wines. We've worked with them for a long time. And and to be honest with you, I started drinking wine initially, not because I'm, not because I even necessarily wanted to, but because I had people coming into my roasting room wanting to trade, you know, wine for coffee. And so there's, there's, I feel like I have had an opportunity to drink so much good wine that I, that I don't deserve <laughs> from a, from a, uh, from a perspective from a uh, perception standpoint or from an expertise standpoint, it just feels like, oh, somebody who, somebody who knows what they're talking about should be drinking this wine. I don't know if I should. But uh, anyway, yeah, we love, I drink a lot of wine from Irie and from Brooks both. Uh, and then uh, who doesn't love bubbles, especially, mm -hmm. I don't know, for some, reason, for some reason when the sun comes out, I want my wine to be bubbly. And so uh, I've had some really delicious bubbly wines from Nasty Woman Wines. I love from the name. <laughs> From A to Z Winery, and also uh, also from R. Stewart here in McMinnville. So yeah. that's kind of what that's what I've been drinking lately. A to Z, A to Z I, I know. I by the way, I love Oregon wines. Uh, uh, I'm European, as you can hear from uh -huh. accent, and uh, my climate where we grow wine in Europe is cold, and Oregon is much uh -huh. closer to that than let's say California. Uh -huh. And uh, it's interesting because my choice, if 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 I had you here. I would uh, give you a Rocinante wines. It's a 2016 Chardonnay. And it's by a winemaker, Miss Rachel Ryan. You can, Ryan, you can find her on uh, Instagram. And I put the, I think I should put all of these winemakers we mentioned in, in the show notes of the podcast. Rachel is awesome. I mean, 
uh, we made wine in the same facility for a while. Uh-huh. And I remember tasting her wine like t- two years ago. By the way, she's a she, she's an advanced sommelier. She's a, like a pro. And I tasted her wine and I was like, this is super weird. This is this is not going to be a good stuff in my head. Then recently, like uh, just before COVID, we had an event where I met her and I was like tasting her Chardonnay, the Chardonnay, and it's it's amazing. It's so nice. So I fall in love with it. It's still closed, by the way. I'm not opening it after until uh, I have a reason to. I mean, if you would come, yeah. I would open it because there is a reason to. Ah. But uh, she's interesting. She, so she's a winemaker, but it was grown in a Sierra foothills. So that's why I'm trying to say that Oregon and Sierra foothills have probably similar uh, climate. They're all both cool climates. And I think Chardonnay is amazing on cool cli- climates. I like them much better yeah. on cold than in, uh, in warm climates. And that's personal. I'm not saying I'm professional. I'm saying what I like. And I think everybody should do that. I mean, I hate when somebody says, what shall I drink? You don't tell me what shall I drink. I'll drink what I like. <laughs> yeah, ah, so, I agree. Because in wine, people try to kind of like, oh, I don't know if I'm professional. They're so scared. You will not believe how scared people are. Like, do you like it? He said, I, I do like it. Then drink it. That's the best, right? Yeah. Well, I really appreciate that. Yeah, I definitely, I definitely do. Uh, I definitely identify with that. I mean, that's, I think that's a great perspective. I mean, I learned it from coffee, you know, I mean, coffee is so personal. Like I remember when I started the industry, you know, we started that light roast in uh, with Green Plantation and people were like, I don't like your coffee. And I was like, OK. And <laughs> I, after a while, I was like, well, he, that person drinks coffee for a long time. I mean, I'm happy to educate them about the coffee up to a certain point because I don't want to change how you drink coffee. I want to show you a new world. If you are interested in it, you are welcome. If not, then th- that's cool, too, you know. And that's yeah, why we started yeah. the darker rose because we wanted kind of like okay, I, I you know let's see maybe you will like this one you know and they, they did so you know it's it's very I think that you know a lot of things are very personal wine coffee, and people just don't want to listen to you that you know you have to change you have to drink this and this no they like something and and that's fair. Yes, I totally agree. I totally agree. Tell us where can people find you. Oh, you can find me, uh, you can find our company at Flag and Wire on Instagram or Facebook. Our, uh, our um, website is flagandwire.com. And uh, if you want to follow me personally, which isn't very fruitful because I don't post very much, I'm just at Nick Walton, N-I-C-K Walton on Instagram. I'll put uh, Instagram and the website, of course, into the show notes. Thank you so much for sharing your knowledge. And uh, this was awesome. No, it was fun. Thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it.